Panera now delivers, so you can order good, clean food right to your office, or door, or porch, or backyard, or front yard, or apartment, or dorm, or castle, or shop, or worksite, or wherever. For lunch, dinner, and everywhere in between. Click the banner to order or visit PaneraBread.com. Participating locations only. Panera. Food as it should be. Blog Talk Radio. Coming from a legacy of preachers, Cheryl Lacey Donovan is walking in her destiny. An anointed woman of God, her mission is to challenge you to look inside yourself for change, to identify the strongholds in your life, and to tear them down with the help of the Creator. Once you have crossed her path, your life will never be the same. Cheryl Donovan is an acclaimed author, inspirational speaker, and compelling advocate for personal empowerment. So get ready for Worth More Than Rubies on blogtalkradio.com. You can be anything that you want to be Cause I really got a plan about what you're gonna be Don't let nobody tell you this It's your destiny, you know When the people start tripping on the board God's fish You can be a politician even though they lie Or you can push friends to something half franchise I was saying, baby, at least remember your first word Did you say yourself sharp, believe me, the truth hurts to Worth More Than Ruby Soul Searching Saturdays. This is Cheryl Lacey Donovan, your host, and our topic for today is desegregation. Did it help or did it hurt? 
I'm sure we'll have quite a few um, comments about that particular topic for today. But before we get started, I thought we would change the lineup just a tad bit today. I want to um, give everyone an opportunity to get on the lines, get on their computers to start listening and things like that. So what I've done is I've invited a couple of people to get on and talk a little bit about some of the things that they're doing right now. I know that we've invited author T.J. Short to come on the show with us today to talk about his new novel, Sherry's Song, and we also have Conchita Thomas who's going to join us today to give us a little bit of information about some health tips. So um, I'm going to go to the phone lines right now. I see two callers there, and we'll find out who they are, let them introduce themselves, and hopefully one of them will be our guest. Um, caller at 706, are you there? Uh, yes, Ms. Donovan, I'm here. Uh, okay. I'm Tony Short. I'm the author of Sherry's Song. Great, great, Tony. We're glad to have you with us today. Uh, call it at 248. Hi, this is Thomas. Oh, hey, how you doing? Great, how are you doing? I am doing just fine. Great to see, uh, hear from you today. Awesome, likewise. Okay. Contina, why don't we go ahead and start with you. Um, Contina and I started this um, whole healthy, wealthy tip earlier this year um, in January, and we called it a new year and a new you. And we've been giving some of our listeners tips throughout the um, throughout the weeks on some of the things that they can do to make their lifestyles a little bit healthier and a little bit happier. So, Contina, I'm going to go ahead and allow you to introduce yourself to this listening audience and to give them a tip for today. Hi, I'm Conceder Thomas with AnytimePT.com, and today we're going to talk about embracing structure and routine for success with fitness and health. I know that many of us um, have a lot of structure and routine in other areas of our life, for instance, our work, our church, our family life, and sometimes the last place we want to go ahead and add that structure is in how we move, how much we move, and in what we eat. However, there are many benefits to embracing structure in that area of life, including creating positive habits. And really it's the habits that you have that are going to determine how healthy and how fit you are. Well, Conchita, we thank you so much for that tip for today. And please feel free to join us and continue listening as we talk about desegregation. Did it help or did it hurt? We thank you for joining us. Thank you, Cheryl. You're so welcome. Now, let's talk to our other guests for today while we're giving people time to get on the line. We're talking to Tony Short. He is the author of a new novel entitled Sherry's Song, and Sherry's Song has to do with domestic violence. Um, Tony, go ahead and tell us a little bit about your book and what inspired you to write it. Well, Sherry's Song is the story of a young lady who marries a high school sweetheart. Shortly after, short, five years into a marriage, uh, her husband loses his job. Now she's working a menial job to support him. Financial pressure turns to physical abuse, leaving her to wonder, can she honor her vows and stand by her husband, or should she cut him loose and go in a different direction? What inspired me to write this book, I was at a book club meeting, and the subject of domestic violence came up. The ladies spoke passionately about domestic violence, and they had a fervor in their eyes as they spoke. So I said, wow, I have to write a book about this because I, I figured that a lot of people, if they're not going through it, they know somebody who's going through it or has been through it, and it would be a great conversation piece to actually have an open-minded look at a woman who wants to be a lady first and foremost on her vows. She's a good, good woman. 
and she's just going through some things that financial pressure causes her husband to start to morph. Okay. So now, Tony, do you have any direct knowledge of, a situ- of situations like this? Were you living in a household where domestic violence was a part of the um, household environment, or was this totally from your talking with other women that had dealt with the issue? Well, um, I, I've come from a home in which my uh, my father passed away before I was up to any size to remember. But I can um, remember seeing family members uh, hear my mom speak on it. And what I did to get the realism of the book, I took certain issues or certain situations that they may have spoke of, and I folded it over into the storyline and made it become part of the character's experience. Okay. Now, is this your first book, or have you written others? It's my second book. Um, The first one is called The Gifted Child, John Saga. Uh, it's a, a snippet. Actually, it, it's part to do with your topic today. Desegregation did it help or hurt? You can mm-hmm. see uh, the young child born at the end of the civil rights struggle, and uh, he's getting a whole lot of conflicting stimulus, you can say. And it's a time of great change, and he's going through some tough things, especially after the loss of his father. Mm-hmm. Okay, so tell us a little bit about um, your environment. Is there anything in your environment that caused you to write the two books that you've written? I know the other one was called The Gifted Child, John Saga. So um, tell us a little bit about that book and then about the environment that sort of inspired you to want to begin to write books. Um, well, The Gifted Child, John Saga is, it's a loose translation, I would say, of my life. I just took scenes and things, and I kind of blended it over into the storyline. And out pop, you know, the gifted child. It speaks on issues that I've been a part of, I've witnessed, and I've just folded it over, and the realism is you're right there. And the way that I've written the book is you're looking through the eyes of an innocent child who is labeled slow at first, and a lot of our um, black children are labeled slow or given a category other than what they are and placed in other classes, so to speak. But uh, this child is eventually tested, and he's discovered to be very, very intelligent. He's actually a gifted child. Mm-hmm. So have you? Um, do you aspire to write more books, or what exactly is in store for you in your future? I have... I say I have at least five books that I've started. I uh, I do poetry, but the thing that really, really, really drives me is a passion for writing. And what I would do, even in the process of writing a book, if an issue comes up that catches my attention that I feel that I should or should write on, I would actually write like the first three chapters and set them aside, and I would come back later on when I when I finish up the book that I'm working on, and then I will deal with that issue then. Okay. Um, Do you have any special events or anything like that that uh, you have in store for you in the future, any book signings that you would like to let our listeners know about? Uh, Something, I have uh, the actual release of Sherry's song coming out at the end of August. That's going to be in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, I'm working with Especially Yours event, and if any listeners is in the Atlanta, Georgia area, I would appreciate your support coming out and meeting me. Also, especially yours event has several um, uh, authors' events coming up, and um, 
I plan on attending those and being a part of those. So I'm just now getting up to the Atlanta area and getting ready for a national release. Okay, great, Tony. Listen, I'm going to go ahead and ask you the question of the day, which is the segregation. Do you think it helped or did it hurt? Oh, wow. Um, that could be a two-edged sword. Uh, I think that even now, as in the area that I grew up in, Mm-hmm. The school was supposed to be uh, desegregated, but it did no good because the uh, the kids that could afford it, they are often uh, sent out of county to a predominantly white school, or either they were sent to a private academy. So pretty pretty much, even though there was a substantial white population in the area I grew up in, if they didn't want their kids to interact with you, uh, they really weren't going to interact with you if they had the financial means. But overall... Um, I'll say on the grassroots level, desegregation, it, overall, it helped. It helped. Okay. All right. Well, we thank you so much for joining us. Before you go, what I want to do is to give you an opportunity to let our listeners know where they can purchase your book or how they can get in contact with you if they want you to come out to do a book signing or some special event. Well, you can reach me at tjshort at com. That's T-J-S-H-O-R-T at M-E-R-O-E publishing.com. You can also uh, contact me through MySpace. That's MySpace.com slash Tony Short, T-O-N-I-E. My name is I-E, not Y, Short, <laughs> S-H-O-R-T. Um, that throws a lot of people off. They often think I'm a woman, but no, mm-hmm. I, I am a man. Um, and also you can um, go to MoreauPublishing.com and you can get what I call buzz copies. Um, that's www.meroepublishing.com. All right, Tony, we thank you so much for joining us today. And if you'd like, you can stay on the line as we discuss this issue, desegregation, did it help or did it hurt? Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, ma'am. You're welcome. Listeners, this is Worth More Than Ruby Soul Searching Saturdays, and I'm your host, Cheryl A.C. Donovan. Today's topic, desegregation, did it help or did it hurt? When we come back, We'll discuss this issue further. Please feel free to give us a phone call. We'd like to have some listeners in on the phone line. Our number is 646-595-375. I'm sorry, 646-595-3716. If you'd like to join in on the discussion, or you can join us in the chat room at www.blogtalkradio.com backslash worth more than movies. We'll be back in just a moment. Are you an author in need of help with your book promotions? Well, look no further. Ella Curry of EDC Creations has cornered the market in Internet online book promotions. From virtual book tours to an online website presence, Ella has everything that you need. Contact her at Ella at EDC-Creations.com or call her at 202-230-6399. That's EDC Creations, creations that leave a lasting impression. Are you looking for opportunities to raise funds for your group or organization? Or maybe your book club needs a few more dollars so that you can have all of the events that you've ever dreamed. Well, contact us at a virtuous woman 31 832-615-1197, extension 703. Call us today for your opportunity to raise funds for your group or organization. We look forward to hearing from you. You are so strong. 
Yet, you succumb to abusive relationships. You are so rich, yet you stay impoverished. Women, what the hell are you thinking? A new book written by Cheryl Lacey Donovan to help women discover their true worth in God. To receive your copy of Women, What the Hell Are You Thinking? Visit the Gospel Shop at 14880 Bel Air Boulevard, Houston, Texas. Or order your copy today at Amazon.com. Welcome back to Work Welcome More Than Rubies on BlogTalkRadio.com. Welcome back, listeners, to Work More Than Rubies Soul Searching Saturdays. I am your host, Cheryl Lacey Donovan, and the number to call in if you'd like to join in on the discussion is 646-595-3716, or you can join us in the chat room at www.blogtalkradio.com backslash Work More Than Rubies. And today we've had with us author Tony Short, who happens to be the author of Sherry's song. He has elected to stay with us today, so we'll probably be conversing back and forth about today's topic, which is desegregation, did it help or did it hurt? And, you know, Tony, one of the things that um, I look at when I ask that particular question is where we were prior to desegregation as far as education is concerned. And when I look at our students now, many of them, you know, I don't know if it's just that they've become apathetic about learning or if the learning process just does not interest them or perhaps, you know, the teachers are not very um, creative as far as how they begin to teach them. One of the things that I know everybody starts talking about is the um, whole MySpace thing. And as soon as they find out that the students are in the computer rooms and in the computer labs using MySpace, the first thing they want to do is take MySpace off of all of the computers. And I, for one, educate adults. And with the adults that I educate, they're just as much enthralled with my space as some of the youngsters are. So what I've chosen to do is to make it a part of what we teach, a part of the curriculum. And, you know, I, I think that perhaps teachers not wanting to be creative and not wanting to bridge the gap between um, the students that they teach and what they're actually teaching is one of the reasons that we're so far off the mark right now. But I know back in the day as far as teaching our children, we were very, very interested in that. We were very, very concerned about what they learned. We made sure that they learned um, about their history and about their culture. But I think that when desegregation happened, we lost a lot of that. And I don't know, Tony, what do you think about that? Do you have any thoughts as far as, you know, where we are and what our children are learning in the education system right now? Um, I think it's very important for us to uh, get some Afro, Afrocentric-based history and study classes in the school system because if a child can identify or learn about their past, they're much more apt to be uh, more read more, be a part of it. I think mm -hmm. that we as a, a people need to not just learn American history, not just learn the uh, history of slavery and Jim Crow. We came before them. We came from Africa. We came from kings, queens. We had our own we had our own um, society and culture over there. What a lot of students don't know, they can say that uh, Africans are backwards or whatever, but a lot of students don't know that there were stone cities in Africa, uh, and Timbuktu was uh, a center of learning that was probably perhaps better than any in Europe at the time. 
But mm-hmm. we don't know that because we were taught, you know, we're being taught the history of slavery and Jim Crow, but our history history came before then, and the children need to know this because that plays mm-hmm. a part in their psychological development. Mm-hmm. So then it would be safe to say that you, you feel like we lost an element of education when we desegregated the schools because now we are not able to um, basically control the type of curriculum that our students are receiving. You you have a, a tremendous point there. Uh, mm-hmm. Once you get in that environment where you become the minority and uh, other people have a say over what's being taught in the school system, uh, that is one of the I would say um, that is one of the downfalls of uh, desegregation because you don't have that control over what your child is really learning. Okay. Hello, caller. It's seven one three. Hello, how's it going? It's going just fine. I believe this is Ricky. This is Ricky. Hey, Ricky, we're glad to have you. Ricky happens to be a part of our school system here in uh, Houston, and I'm sure he has some great comments on what he thinks about the segregation and the way that the schools are going right now. And, Ricky, one of the things that we were talking about right before you got on the line was the fact that perhaps we've lost a lot of the education that our children in particular need as a result of the segregation. And I was wondering what your thoughts might be on that since you are an administrator, um, as well as your thoughts on our ability not to be able to really control the kind of curriculum that they receive? Uh, I would like to first say that uh, desegregation and segregation, those two things kind of, you know, is a real touchy subject when you're speaking in public education. Private education is not as um, touchy of a subject because, again, most private education, uh, most private schools are funded in a different way, unlike public schools where they're funded by taxpayers' dollars, mm-hmm. okay? And so when you have educators, and we're speaking in educators that are talking about did the segregation or segregation, what was the benefit, the pros and the cons, in today's time, that's not a topic that anybody wants to touch in the education system. Mm-hmm. Many of us outside of education have opinions about it, but in education where we should be discussing it, no one wants to discuss it because we want to pretend as though it does no longer exist. Mm-hmm. So that was just my little soapbox of that, I would say. But to uh, give, you know, my my opinion, I think uh, to kind of echo with the uh, caller earlier that you guess you had on, it, it is a double-edged sword. Did, I guess on the grassroots level, I would agree, it did help, but then a lot was lost because what happens is, when we desegregated the public school system, we created a class situation where it was the haves and the have-nots. If your family was able to provide for you and put you in a nice environment in a nice school, you were able to be well-educated. If your family did not, and then you happen to have a bad teacher, because that also has to be thrown into the mix, then you also was lost in the system. Now, if you happen to be in a school that was not well-funded due to the haves and have-nots of the class situation, but you had a great teacher, because there are still great teachers in inner-city urban schools, then you had a better opportunity to be successful. The problem is the good teachers left Mm -hmm. to go just like the students and their parents left and went out to the areas where there was the haves. So... Mm -hmm. You know, that's 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 
take on that. Okay. Caller 215, did you have a question or comment? Uh, just a comment. Um, I was looking looking back over the history of it and realizing that um, when desegregation um, – in 1954, and they made the decision to desegregate the schools, that it really did not make much of a change until 1968 in the South, and then 1973 in the North. Mm-hmm. We are still dealing in the North with the issue of desegregation. We're still dealing in the North um, with the unequal in this, how much money is spent, whether you're in the suburban schools or whether you're in the urban schools. So I, I don't know if it helped or not. <laughs> I, right, don't, right. I don't know if it really had a chance to help. But, but on the other hand, I think something that Tony talked about was very I, – I remember my father who grew up in the South, who went to school in the South, didn't finish school, but he gave me a book on black history. And he said, this is what we learned in our school. Mm-hmm. And he was talking about a black school, a school with all black kids before desegregation. He said, this is what we learned. Mm-hmm. So what was funny was I hadn't learned that or was I was not taught anything in that history book until I went to college. I had mm-hmm. gone through a Philadelphia school system without knowing my history. Mm-hmm. When I went to Cheney State College at the time, which was a predominantly African-American school, is when I found out about my history. So I, do you and, think that, no, I'm sorry, go ahead. Now, my point is, desegregation had not really made much of a change for us in the North mm-hmm. because it's still, they're still working through the process of desegregating the schools. You still have predominantly black schools. You still have some predominantly white schools. Uh, you have some schools that are now very mixed in the high school areas because the communities have changed. Um, but when I was growing up in that, it was the same. It, it hadn't changed. And so our education, as far as being in black schools, were limited. Mm-hmm. But now, you know, my question, what I, what I wonder about that is, you know, even though the schools are, you know, because I agree that the schools still tend to be segregated in the thought that many of them are still predominantly black or predominantly Hispanic or predominantly white, but mm-hmm. then by the same token, once it became desegregated, at least prior to that, we had some control over what the students learned. And I think that um, even though it didn't desegregate us as far as the um, cultures of the people that are in the schools, I think that they did desegregate us in the fact that they are not they are no longer allowing us to have any control over what the students actually learn because as you alluded to earlier, when your father was coming up, he was taught out of a history book that, that had much about African American culture, but right. now we rarely see that. So I think, do you think? Rarely. That, yeah. 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 We rarely see it, or, or do we want to be reminded of it? If I talk right. to young people today, they don't want to talk about it. They don't want to look at it, and they and they they've gone through a school system that hasn't instilled anything of their heritage in them. But guess what? I found a thing called a library. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. right. You understand? And I also had had a family that wanted to tell me about our culture and about our, our history. Mm-hmm. And I think that somewhere in the family, somewhere in the home, somewhere in the church, we have to we have to place that in our curriculum. We have to place it in our family. You're, our young people are not even connected to their own family path. Mm-hmm. 
no less being connected to their history as African Americans. So maybe they're not doing it in the schools, but I should do, be doing that in my home. I do that with my, my, my I don't have children of my own, but I have niece, I have a niece and nephew. They will, if they won't know, hear it from anywhere else, will know a black history because of me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's a very important point that you brought up, and we've talked about that. As a matter of fact, I think every topic that we've had on the show always goes back to the family unit, and you're right. It is very important that if it's not in the school systems, then we need to make sure that it is um, prevalent in our particular communities. But then should we not also, if we're going to make sure it's prevalent in the communities, as parents, should we not go to the school systems and demand that this is something that they have in the curriculum? Because just as um, the caller said earlier, you know, within the school system itself, they rarely talk about it. And, you know, and I don't blame them because part of the reason for that is because they want to keep their jobs. You know, you don't right, want to stir right. up the pot because if you start stirring up the pot and you're all by yourself and you have nobody backing you up, then uh-huh. it's a difficult situation to jump into the fire. But right. if, as parents, we chose to back the educators and the administrators that are in the system as they speak up about um, having that particular aspect in the curriculum for our children, then perhaps Mm -hmm. there would be a difference and they would make a change. Oh, I agree. But you know what? Mm -hmm. Before we even get to go to the school board, how about just increasing the number of parents that are concerned about what's happening in the school that their children are attending? Exactly. You're so true. Once the once the parents realize what's going on in school and what the curriculum looks like, and nobody's trying to hide the curriculum, if you really attend any of the school meetings and see, you they they have to show you what they're teaching, mm-hmm. um, and then you realize that, then you have a basis to stand on because you've been a part of the school and you've gone there and visited and you have a relationship. So when you go up there as a group of parents saying we we need a change in the curriculum, we need something added, that you have some basis to stand on that you're you know you know what I'm saying. That, exactly. that parents, no, no. as parents begin to take the the responsibility for what happens in the classroom, and see mm-hmm. what's happening in the curriculum no, that's being no. taught in the classroom, that I think they can also go and start going to the school board and, and demanding the no. changes that be necessary in the curriculum. I see here the brother saying no, no, no. <laughs> um, uh, if I might say something, um, is this three hundred one? Yeah, thank you. No, this is 301 right here. I thank you for, for taking my call. And look at here. Uh, I've listened to you for five minutes or so. And we've we, we got to stop engaging sometimes in revisionist history. We didn't fight to desegregate the school because we, because we had control of Jim Crow, because we were large and in charge. White folk ran Jim Crow schools, and there was no comparison. We needed to have uh, the same access that white kids have. And what it did was this. Very quickly before I get to today. Uh, we went after teachers. Teachers got equal salaries. Superintendents today, black ones, getting million-dollar contracts, okay? We did not prepare black children to compete in an integrated uh, school setting. They cannot compete no way, no how today. I'm from Maryland, right? Baltimore. Come on. We got a one, Baltimore has a $1.2 billion budget, $1.2 billion. All right? The school superintendent, Hispanic, the last five or eight have been black. Uh, the state school board, all are majority black. The, the Baltimore City School Board, uh, majority black. Ain't nobody there but us. And we respect the parents. They do not want parents coming in, nosing around, 
putting their two cents in, ensuring that their kids get a competitive education. I go up to school board all the time. I'm telling you, they are short on answers. They don't want to answer any of your questions. They don't, they don't give a damn. All they want to do is get hustle your kids, put them on SSI, get their money, and don't give a damn about what happens to them when they leave. In Baltimore City, if you look at the surrounding universities, University of Maryland, Baltimore, uh, Baltimore City, uh, Johns Hopkins, and you go to commencement, you do not see any Baltimore City uh, uh, products graduating from those universities. None. And don't nobody give a damn. Black people in particular. They hustling, man. They hustling. You know, I, I would agree with that because I, you know, I remember going up to a school here in Houston when my boys were in school, and when I went up to the, um, you know, they actually told me that, oh, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, let's see if we can let you into the classroom mm. and observe. And I'm like, what do you mean, wait a minute? I mean, if, Thank if you. they did something wrong, you would be calling me and want me up here immediately, but because I want to sit and observe and hold the instructor accountable for what they're teaching my child, all of a sudden you want to wait a minute, what, so you can make sure that she's doing what she's supposed to be doing in the classroom? I don't think so. Go ahead, let me go to the classroom, and we'll talk about all that other stuff later because I absolutely know that I have a right to go and sit and observe in the classroom. And, this, and you're right, this was a predominantly black school with predominantly black administrators in it, and I would think that if they saw a black parent come up to their school, they would be happy to see that and would have open arms <laughs> and open doors and be singing praises to me for doing so, but that is mm. not the way that I was received. Caller at 706, I think you had a comment to make earlier. I'm sorry, go ahead. Uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm going to go back and basically mention on what's being taught. I can remember when I was in school, Mm -hmm. uh, my mom bought a 1977, I think it was 1977, set of World Book Encyclopedia. And uh, in that World Book Encyclopedia was a black history section. Well, in the main section, you, know, you got three sections on black history. In the main section, once they mentioned Nubia, you had a paragraph. You had to go to the black section to actually find out what was going on, what was Nubia, what was Nubia all about. It was like they didn't want you to have, uh, um, you know, a belief that black people can do anything. Because if you look at it, when Nubia rose up and conquered Egypt, actually Egypt was the prize, and therefore they ruled the world. But they don't want black people to believe that. They want them to believe that they're, you know, dumb, backwards, and all that other stuff. That goes to say what you can teach in the school system and give them some self-pride in uh, what their people, uh, uh, black people, have done over the years. Wait, wait, wait. Let me, let, me, let me say this very quickly. Uh, the dilemma and the problem of educating black children today is not the fact we don't know our history, Egyptian, Nubian. First of all, the, the teachers don't know that either, okay? That's why you don't get that until you get to college. That's not the problem. The problem is this. I'm talking about basic fundamentals here, reading, writing, and arithmetic. We don't know that. We cannot. Look, there, there are Koreans, uh, Chinese, Jamaicans, Nigerians coming over here kicking our butts in mathematics. They are at the engineering school at University of Texas, at the University of Maryland. We cannot pass the, the most menial basic skills test. We, they, they got to dumb, 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 dumb down the test in order to get any satisfactory results. We, I'm talking about just the basic stuff before we can even get to Africa, right? Damn, you got to learn how to read first. You got to learn some, some basic math. Our kids are... are we, we treat math like it's a holy water on a vampire. We run it from it. And that's by design, keeping us dumb and stupid. You know, that goes back to what I was saying, though. 
Uh, they've been told all their lives that they're dumb, they're stupid. They're all the um, media images they see are them doing wrong or black people doing wrong. Like, for instance, if you look at Katrina, when they had the uh, white people, they found some water. But when they showed the black people, they were robbing something. It's those media images that they're protecting on the mind and it displays on the subconscious and it gives them a sense of value, which is nothing, nil. And that was it goes back to. And they're disenfranchised, so they don't really try. I've been there, done that. Mm-hmm. Well, now, uh, caller three hundred one. Do you mind giving us your name? Some of the chatters in the blog in the uh, chat room want to know what your name is. Oh, I, I, I'm Black Achievement USA. I'm in your chat room. I see people. I, I'm going to tell you something. I'm not uh, using blacks as victims. Are you kidding me? All I'm saying is, why can't African Americans look? I know the history of, of education in this country very quickly. Uh, the, the Big Ten, uh, the Big 12 universities, right, those are all land-grant uh, institutions where the federal government gave land to build those universities to educate rural whites after the Civil War. And today they have their uh, rural whites are well represented at those universities. At the turn of the century in New York City, uh, you had a lot of immigrants coming over here from Europe. The, the New York City public school system wrapped their arms around those children, made sure they got a proper education, and the city of New York made sure that they got free uh, a college education so they could, they could go and become lawyers, doctors, and dentists, and so on and so forth. You know, today, the Hispanics, man, they coming. I see how in certain regions of this country we give a big hug around the uh, 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 non-English proficient, they call them, a uh, uh, group of, of students. And I'm telling you, if you look at the University of California school system, the University of Texas school system, you know, uh, New Mexico, you will see some promising data that shows that uh, Hispanics are making uh, progress, progress towards achieving higher educational goals. But again, if you go to Baltimore, if you go to Detroit, again, a $1.3 billion budget, you go to the University of Michigan, uh, medical school, dental school, pharmacy school, law school, you're not going to find any uh, graduates from, the, from that school system, not a one. And I can't ask why. I can't hold people accountable. I can't say, why are you busing for 40 years when we know busing doesn't work? Why can't you have a strong, uh, accountable educational system right here in my community? Why is it that when I come in, you got to call security, Okay. Mm-hmm. You got to, it's, it's real out there, and I'm not blaming, it, it ain't a white thing, because these are black folk running this. These are black folk hustling our kids. Now, Black Achievement, I want to ask you this, because I do absolutely believe that it's accountability and responsibility involved, particularly on our part. And when I hear you talk about the Hispanics, one thing that I do recognize about them is that they are hungry for the education. But I don't see that same thing a lot of times in our own community. Do you think that that could be a part of what the issue is, especially going back to what the lady said earlier when she was talking about the fact that, um, you know, we really don't, as, um, as a group of individuals, go into the schools and demand the kind of accountability. I think that maybe we've become somewhat apathetic about that. Is education even really important to us anymore? I think at one time it really was, but I'm not so sure that's the case. What do you think about that? Uh, uh, let, let me explain this here very quickly from what I see. It is not, uh, you know, is it the school system or the communities or the parents? Uh, there's a double dose 
okay, they all work in unison. It's a concerted effort to keep black children dumb as ever, okay, from all parties involved. Here's the thing. When you go to school, the thug does not set the curriculum. Uh, a wayward child does not tell me how and when he or she should be educated. I'm going to tell you what I expect of you, and you're going to do it, or you're going to get the hell up out of here. Mm-hmm. You did, now, now, we don't get that. We don't, we don't get tell them that this is important. We tell them basketball is important. Oh, hell yeah. They poor as hell, but they can win a, the 440 relay. They can mm-hmm. set state records. They can be on the Olympic team, okay, because that's what we push. That's what we tell them to do. But when I say education, all of a sudden everything falls apart. And I'm saying it doesn't have to be that way, particularly when you get over a billion dollars. When teachers getting nice pensions, when uh, you got all the uh, technology that the world could ever want, and all I'm saying, why, where's the account? And I don't care if your mom on crack. Mm-hmm. You're going to have to meet these minimum skills, and that's it. That is it. I don't have time for the foolishness. And as I stated before, it's, to me, it's not whose fault it is. It's all of us. All of us act to keep our kids non-competitive. And that's why today you go to whatever state school you want to go to. You go take a look at the, the medical school, the dental school, engineering school, and you're going to see other people's kids up in there, and some of them from third-world countries. Um, I think I think he hit on, he hit on a, a tremendous point when he said that um, they can run a four something forty or whatever he said. It's that if you go to a football game, you would see all the parents and things in the stand cheering the, uh, the kids on, basically. But how many parents do you see at an academic event? That's what I want to know. You don't see none of them, and I, my thing to you is that's irrelevant. I don't care if don't nobody show up. You're going to take this chemistry class, and you're going to excel, or you ain't going to graduate, or you're not going to pass. I don't, I, look here. The, 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 the school system should not be dependent upon parental involvement. It shouldn't, I wouldn't care if not one parent show up, n- never. That's not going to change the high standards I have for my children in the classroom. It's not going to change. And the fact that we're so damn stupid and we see more value in, t- in kids knocking the hell out of each other on the football field, then that's on us. But still, I, I'm not going to give anybody a break because, as I said, I see how we went after other communities, man. I, we, we talk about uh, 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 Little Rock. You know, uh, uh, less than two weeks after Little Rock, right, the Russians had launched up into space uh, a satellite called Sputnik. President Eisenhower was so damn mad that we were not the first to launch a satellite. He asked uh, uh, Housing and Education Welfare, which, like, wh- why, why can't our children learn math and science? Why, why, why are the Russians beating the hell out of us in space? They said, well, we not, you know, our kids, they, if they want to get an advanced degree, they go over into Europe. He said, stop all that. End it right now. We're going after these kids. And we, while we were trying to get integration, they, the, the gap in math and science was, was, was growing tremendously. NASA was created. They put trillions of dollars into NASA. The National Science Foundation was created. They funded the universities with research dollars all across the country. And here we are fighting, struggling to, to, to get an integrated uh, educational setting. And then we got played. You're absolutely right. We got played. We got played. And, and now, now the gap in math and science is so great, they're doing studies that say that 
uh, black fifth graders are like 60, 70 years behind their white counterparts, and their white counterparts even further behind the Asian counterparts. So who, who, who's going to carry the weight? Who's going to step up and say, okay, with this type of money, these type of resources, and I know it ain't all perfect, who are we going to hold accountable? The best thing we could do is focus on a, a high school dropout rate, but we ain't going to never get nowhere. I say we need to focus on the success rate of these kids. Mm-hmm. Well, listen, this is worth more than Ruby Soul for King Saturdays, and I am your host, Cheryl Lacey Donovan. If you want to join in on the discussion, call us at 646-595-3716, or you can join us in the chat room at www.blogtalkradio.com backslash worth more than movies. When we come back, I'm going to take a call from the caller at 267, and then I want to go back to the caller at 713 because he is an administrator in the school system and ask him how important or how much better it would be for him if he did have the support of the parents in the school setting. We'll be back for worth more than movies in just a moment. Join us here each week for Worth More Than Ruby's Soul Searching Saturdays at 3 p.m. Central Standard Time with your host, Cheryl Lacey Donovan. Join in on the discussion at 646-595-3716 or the live chat at blogtalkradio.com backslash Worth More Than Ruby's. Today's show is being brought to you by Cheryl Lacey Donovan and The Virtuous Woman 31 and the award-winning book, Women, What the Hell Are You Thinking? Pick up your copy of Women, What the Hell Are You Thinking? at Amazon.com today or visit our website at www.avirtuouswoman-31.org. You're listening to Worth More Than Rubies. And after the show, don't forget to give us a rating. Let us know how we're doing. Add us to your favorites. It's Worth More Than Rubies with your host, Cheryl Lacey Donovan, on blogtalkradio.com. Welcome back to Worth More Than Rubies on blogtalkradio.com. Welcome back, listeners, to Worth More Than Rubies, Soul Searching Saturdays. And again, this is your host, Cheryl Lacey Donovan. The number to call in for the discussion is 646 595-3716 or join us in the chat room at www.blogtalkradio.com backslash worth more than rubies and I want to ask that if you're listening to us on the internet as well please make sure you turn the volume down just a little bit because I'm getting a little bit of feedback from that but thank you so much for joining us today. Caller at 267 did you have a question or a comment? Well this is Ms. V on the scene Cheryl and again you've done it to us, you've given us something with which had a lot of meter on it, and I appreciate that. Hey, Ms. V, how you doing? I'm wonderfully well, uh, wonderfully well. Black Achievement, my brother, if no one else is with you, Ms. V is. I'm feeling that completely. This is about accountability, which unfortunately for black folks, younger or older, we seem to omit that in the equation. That, of course, does not leave out all the different parameters that make up our problem, but the bottom line is, at the end of the day, it's about you and that person in the mirror and whether or not you are going to be responsible over what you have in your hand. And that's what's up. And it's not about victims or being behind eight balls, as someone has put in the chat room. That's ridiculous thought. I can't even imagine thinking like that. Life is about progress. 
No one can hold you back. They can attempt to derail you. But at the end of the day, again, it is how bad do you want it? How bad do you want to succeed? How bad do you want to follow the vision and purpose that you've been given? And that's what's up. Mm-hmm. You know, I totally agree with you on that. I, I, I talk about this all the time on the show, accountability and responsibility, and I just don't see it often enough in our uh, particular culture. You know, and that, that's why I want to go back to the caller at 713 because, you know, he made a very poignant point about the fact that when um, you're an administrator in the education system or when you're an educator, you know, it's difficult to want to just stand up by yourself because right now they see nobody behind them saying, okay, you know what, if you go and you stand up to them, here we are, we're going to be supportive of you, we're going to let them know that we're not going to put these people back on our school board, that they don't start listening to us and putting the kind of curriculum that we want our children to learn into the school settings and things like that. So caller at 713, I want to ask you again, how much better would it be for you if you had the kind of parental support that you needed to make these kinds of changes? Uh, to everybody, I like to first say everybody's bringing comments. Your opinions, no matter how far they to one side or the other, are very good comments and opinions and, uh, about the educational system. But one thing that I have to say, and this is just in my experience, and it has been proved in the area that I'm that I'm in and where I work, that parent support is critical. Uh, it's a very critical resource in the educational process to help certain students become successful. In other words, it's just an extra added support system that some students need to get them to where you want them to be educationally. Now, there are there are very many, probably a vast majority of students that go to school that don't have parent involvement are successful. That's a given. But to answer your question, yes, parental support is critical and it's very needed for certain students to become successful because it's, a, it's an added support system that they need to get them to where you want them to be. Um, when you speak of accountability, what one must also realize is little kids are little kids. The brain, the psyche, everything is still developing. Are you saying that you're going to hold them accountable? Uh, you can't hold them accountable because they, they're not capable of reasoning. It's up to the parents, the education, educators, and everything else to reach those kids and get them off in the right direction. You can't hold a, a person who's just starting out in math, learning the fundamentals of math or reading. You can't hold them accountable. you got to work with them. It's up to the uh, adults in the uh, system to really get to them, to get them where they need to be. After a certain point, yes, hold them accountable. But we're trying to lay the foundation for them to learn so that they can build on the other things. How much influence do you all think that the uh, media has on the way that um, our children see or our children feel about education? You know, one of the things that comes to my mind is that a uh, year or so ago, Oprah built this school over in Africa, and the children there, you could see it in their faces, the fact that they were so excited and so ecstatic about the opportunity to be able to learn. And, again, I do not see that when we're talking about our children. You know, they, they are used to having to pay for their school books. And I can remember my mom, you know, when she talks to me from time to time, she'll tell me that, that when they were going to school, they had to pay for their school books. So, you know, they, they knew that they had to be accountable 
to someone because somebody had to pay for those books. So I'm wondering, you know, does the fact that our children now are growing up so much on the media and, you know, looking at all of these images that are portrayed on television, you know, where they believe that, you know, education is not the way to succeed in life, but instead, like someone said earlier, being a great basketball player or being a great football player or, you know, being a great rapper, those kinds of things, does that play into what we're seeing right now? Can I answer that question? Or can I comment on that? Uh, textbooks being paid for is um, something that still goes on today. It's just not publicized as the way it was, say, when your mother was going to school. Books are still paid for. It's paid for by taxpayers' dollars. And when that book is lost or is not returned when it's issued out to a student, that book has to be paid for by the parent. So in some eyes, they're paying twice for the purchase of a book that has been paid for by the taxpayer's dollars. That's another uh, topic and conversation, but just to give you the information on that I'm sure you wanted to know, books are still being paid for. They're not free, uh, and they're not just given to students, you know, as if no one is paying and there's no accountability for the textbooks because they're, that's one thing in the state of Texas that is very, very uh, important is how the accountability of those textbooks are issued out, brought back in, and are they returned as far as who are being reimbursed for those books? But to go back to the desegregation, I do have to say this. I think one of the problems is just my just what's going on in my area. And, and uh, to go back also with the caller saying in the north, they're working on desegregation. I wasn't aware of that. That's pretty interesting as well. I think in the south, desegregation pretty much uh, it, it's it's in place, been in place for quite some time. And I think it has now created another system, as I alluded to earlier, which is there's a class system. Now, it's not a matter of race because, of course, desegregation was to abolish racial segregation. In the South, there, that has been done. What has now been created is a class. It's the haves and the have-nots. If you have, it doesn't matter what color you are, you can get a good education if you wear a good education that's being provided. It is no there is no question that in certain inner city schools, they're not being provided that education. It has nothing to do with the fact that they're black. It just so happened to be that they don't. They have. It just so happened that they are black, but they're Hispanics there as well. It's just they don't have economically what they need, and so they don't get what they deserve. That's the way no, I, I see it. I would agree with that in general as far as um, right now it is more about a class system as opposed to being black or white. I think that that was a very poignant point that you made because, you know, like you said, someone can be a poor white person or poor Hispanic person and they still will not get the same type of um, education that someone might um, when they can go to other schools or when they can get um, go to pay for schools or go to private schools and things like that. So I would agree with that. But I did want to go back to another point that you made a few moments ago and that was um, the fact that the books are being paid for by the um, taxpayers. And what is interesting about that is, is that I recognize that, but having um, had a, an organization that went out and did um, health care services for low-income individuals, one of the things that is so, so interesting and mind-boggling about the way that some people think 
is the fact that if it's not coming directly out of their pocket, if they didn't have to write a check for it and take it to the school and receive those books, they have a totally different mindset. Because I, I agree. Can remember, I can remember us going out to um, some of the um, low-income neighborhoods here in the city of Houston and providing services for um, children that were on Medicaid. And when we went out there, we had to literally go and knock on doors. The thing was, we were trying to make the health care services more accessible. So we had to go out and knock on doors to get um, the, the parents to let the children come to the services that we were providing. We had to take the children. The parents did not come. And then one of the parents that did come said to me, well, this isn't free. Medicaid is paying for it. So you're right. It may be being paid for through our taxes, but it still does not give people that same sense of accountability. So it is a little bit different than when they had to actually go into their pockets and take out of their direct income or out of their direct budget $50, $100, or whatever to pay for those books. It's a totally different mindset. Can I, can I, can I respond to um, the class over race thing? Sure. Uh, uh, this is, uh, when I was in graduate school at the University of Illinois in uh, rural Illinois, Champaign-Urbana, uh, it was well represented by poor whites. Poor whites were, were, were there. But what you didn't have, you didn't have a lot of poor blacks uh, from the Chicago, East St. Louis area. And a handful that we did have, have were there struggling. Uh, here in Maryland, uh, they did a study, and they looked at the test scores between uh, black children who were not on the free lunch program and white children who were on the free lunch program. And there was no difference in terms of academic achievement, none whatsoever. I think sometimes, and I'm very, and this is why I, I, I really focus on black achievement, because I know for a fact we've never went after black children. Yeah, some of us have gotten more money than others, and we've able, money solves a lot of those issues for us. But as a nation, we have always, always passed the buck on integration on black children. That's why Little Rock had, you know, the impact that it did. That's why the busing in Baltimore uh, uh, excuse me, Boston had the impact that it did. That's why the Supreme Court get cases all the time concerning uh, uh, black children being bused to, you know, whatever. Race is important, and we can't ignore it. And someone asks me for solutions. Everybody always asks me for solutions. And every time I give them solutions, they don't want to do it. They don't, they don't want to try it. Uh, I say to anybody who's willing to listen, it's not necessarily about solutions. It's about commitment, and by commitment, I mean we got to stick to it. When you try something, I don't care what it is, and it doesn't work, learn from it, refashioned it, uh, do something else, keep it moving towards full excellence, full advancement of all children. Don't keep doing the same thing over and over and over again. Title I, one example. Reading First programs, another example where you see there's no commitment coming from no one. I said that in the state of Maryland, now this is a costly proposition, but I said we need to make K3, K4 education, early childhood education accessible to all children, number one. Uh, now, that's, that's the most costly thing I ever said. Uh, number two, I said that when the kids get to, to middle school, they should be offered, instead of one hour of math, they should be offered two hours of math, such that they are able to, be, when they graduate from middle school, uh, be proficient in geometry and algebra, okay? 
oh, man, they're they shooting me down. And I said, when you get to high school, I said, we talked about sports and, and, and singing in the choir and being in, in the play and, 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 and whatever. If you're going to engage in extracurricular activities, today you simply need a 2.0. I said, well, let's raise that to a 2.5. Again, they don't want to hear that. They don't want to hear that. I, the, the math requirement, you only need two years of math. I said, well, I think you should need four years of math. I agree. <laughs> and they, again, again, nobody wants to hear that. And these are not, these, I think some of these are not very costly decisions. I go to my community. Again, I want to have a math B for first, second, third year uh, uh, graders to prepare them for the standardized test. You know, Hello? test them from, from uh, uh, all the way up to multiplication. And, hey, I can't even get a community uh, uh, venue to do something like that. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it, it is an uphill battle, and it, it, the, the people are paid a hell of a lot more. I ain't paid nothing. But it's people who are in our school systems who get six-figure salaries who are paid to come up with solutions that work, and they don't do it. And then, again, they don't do it. So that's all I think, and that's all, that's all I got to say. Thank you. Okay. Ms. V, did you have something to say on that? I did. I did. Um, just, um, well, I'm, I'm completely just sitting here floored. I'm literally on my floor. <laughs> but um, when, what I wanted to add, Cheryl, is this, that, you know, a lot of what we're hearing from every area is not a left or a right side. It's just the, the viewpoints of people. I don't believe in sides. I believe if we're going to work anything out, we're going to do it collectively. So I just want to drop that out there. The second thing is this. Um, when I'm listening to my brother talk about, you know, these community activities with learning for our children and how, you know, people are shaking their heads at it, I also want to throw into this subject, into this discussion that um, here outside of South, uh, Southeast Pennsylvania, um, we're running into a problem where people are willing to pay students to get good grades. Now, I don't understand the sanity in any of that because personally – Education and learning is, should be a requirement. A person mm-hmm. desires to do that, not be paid to do it. That is the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen in my life. What one needs to do is consider this. If you are running into these obstacles where people aren't willing to, whether the parents or the children aren't willing to cooperate, you have to understand their value system. And unless you change the character of a person, you are never going to have any change. And that's the root of the problem. You have to get people to see the value and want and desire it. And that's where we have fallen short over the last 35 to 40 years. That's all I got to say. I'd like to make a comment to that right quick. I, I totally agree with changing the character of the person. And I think that that lends to what I said earlier, what goes on in my area. And I also believe geographically there are different things that are going on that, that, are, that would lend to our various viewpoints because to call a 301 – when he mentioned about having two hours of math, that's an excellent idea. Well, we've been doing that in the state of Texas for like 15 years. So I think geographically there's going to be that, – that's going to lend to various points. You know, we've, we've been doing that for a very long time, offering kids that are struggling in math two-hour math a block in a day. But I will say this, it does cost money to do that because when you give a student for added time within a regular school day, not before or after school, you have to pay body to do that, meaning that contracted teacher only has a certain amount of minutes, hours, days, so on and so forth, and if that requires extra, you have to bring somebody else in, which requires more money. Now, to 
Linda, what the, the lady Smith V said about the character, changing the character of a person, I totally agree with that. And that goes back to what I believe is it's the haves and the have-nots. Because in the area where we live, it doesn't matter what color you are. If your parents can provide you and put you in a school where they have a good educational system, your chances of being successful goes leaps and bounds if they leave you in that inner city school where there is not a good education. That has been proven time and time again in this area. That's why so many kids from inner city transfer out to the schools in the suburb, hence why so many African Americans have moved from the inner city out to where the suburbs are. Now, of course, the Angles are making their way back in the suburb, but their kids are grown. They don't have kids anymore. They want to move back. They don't want to drive that far anymore to work, but that's a different issue. We're still out in the suburbs for those who went out there, and the, now that problem that was in the inner city is now trickling out to the suburbs because now those schools are being affected with the changing scores of African-American students and Hispanics not, reading, not being on grade level. But their exposure in the suburb is helping them to be successful even though they're not on grade level. The kids in the city have no exposure. So even though they're poor in the suburbs and they happen to somehow get out there to that good school, they have a better chance even though they're not on grade level because of the exposure of the things that are out there. And the parents' character changes when they see things around them are different. In the inner city, they don't see it. It's not there, and that's a problem. Now, um, one of the things that I did want to talk about was Ms. Z's comment earlier about paying children to learn. My husband and I actually had a discussion about that when we saw it on CNN. And, you know, my thing was it's a very, very thin line. You know, what happened to wanting to learn simply because it's something that you need to do. You need to learn. We all learn. We're lifelong learners. We're in a continuous mode of learning. So why should we pay the children to learn? But then on the other side of that coin is that there are other people out there. There are drug dealers and hustlers and all kinds of kinds of people that are willing to pay our children to do different things. And if there is nothing in the classroom to catch their attention or a creative way to get them to learn or a creative means for them to begin to want to learn, then, you know, if, if that is what it's going to take, then I don't know. Maybe that's what we need to do. I, I really don't know for sure. But I do know. I think I'm that's right what you need v. to do. Oh, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. I, I was just going to say that I think, Ms. V, I was, I'm right on with you. When I heard that, I was like, you've got to be kidding me. We now have to pay the kids to learn? Yeah, I think it's ludicrous. I think it's ludicrous that we're paying a child to get an education. That's insane. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, most children that I know that go to school, they don't have to work. They don't provide in their home. They're not the main provider. They don't have another job. All they have to do is get up pretty much and go to work. I mean, go to school. I don't know why we're paying them. But I will say this, what I have noticed, and I did a little research on when I saw that on CNN, is I thought it was ludicrous. So schools that they are trying this in, for the part, now there may be some other ones, but there are schools where the area and the exposure is very limited. I didn't see any schools in the suburbs where they were paying kids to go to school. And so, therefore, I'm going to say, I think that goes back to what Ms. V said. If you need this about the care and what they want for their mm -hmm. children. Mm -hmm. And it also goes to the haves and the have-nots. 
And my area where I live, where I work, which is a suburb, you don't have to pay a kid to do anything. If I want 10 kids to help me volunteer, if I need 10 kids and volunteer to move textbooks, I can just make a phone call and 10 kids are going to be there. Mm-hmm. I don't even have to pay them. So I think that's insane that we're paying somebody to go to school to help them be successful. That's, that's, that's just ludicrous. Mm-hmm. But now isn't that indicative of a larger societal problem as far as what our values are? Because like somebody mentioned in the chat room, if the value is money, if, if, value, if money is what the children value, then that's the reason why you have to basically bribe them to learn. And I, that, that is even a bigger issue than what we're talking about here as far as the segregation is concerned. Um, I see that caller at 515. Did you have a question or a comment? Hi, this is Peas in Their Pods. And first I want to say, Miss V, you're, you're, you're right on. But I, have, um, I want to say something. I, I think we have to realize um, what children we are talking about. I think we're talking about children in the inner city who all they hear is gunshots and, and things like that, which would be very hard for a child to learn. So my solution is why not get the churches to start getting computers and teaching those little kids on mm-hmm. a weekly Basis. Yeah, that's yeah uh, PZ in their pods. Uh, all it takes is a phone call. That's, that's, that's all it takes is a phone call, and uh, it don't take a lot of money to right. to, to get to get a few computers. And, and, but but that that's all that, that that's all that's involved there. And the fact that we even we haven't done that yet, far as I know. Okay, and I, don't get me wrong, there are some churches that are doing it, I'm sure. But the fact that the churches are not, I mean, right caught up in the crux, in the center of this, right. is damnable to me. Mm-hmm. Okay, that, the, the fact that they're not all up in it, I, I, don't, I can't understand I that. that. I agree with that. Well, so I do I. That, um, here, here in Houston, our church has opened up one charter school for at-risk children, and they are uh, or what they call at-risk children, and they are also opening up an additional charter school. So there are some uh, churches that are trying to get involved in that, perhaps too little too late, but at least they are trying to make some strides towards that, which brings me to the next question that I want to ask the callers, and that is, do we think that it would make a difference if we opened up our own schools, or would we still be seeing the same type of apathy from our children if we're not creating environments that intrigue them and make them want to learn? Cheryl, this is Ms. V. I'll, I'll start it off. Um, a lot of what we're saying already exists, as each of us should be able to agree that, that it does exist. Mm-hmm. Um, there are schools, especially as an example in Harlem, Harlem, New York, that have been doing that. Uh, but by the same token, um, we have to remember that these things, we can all agree, are not as easy as we would think for a lot of reasons. While we have people that may be administratively uh, a part of teaching our children in these special schools or these, these schools that are duly appointed just for, for us as blacks or underprivileged children, we also have to have people that are fighting in the trenches in regards to legislative moves to help maintain this as, as our right because there's a lot of flack that we get as black people legislatively for a lot of different reasons. Um, our culture is always under attack. I don't know if people don't notice it or maybe it's just me, but um, it's amazing that when you throw on the word black or African-American to something that you're looking to do, it's like, well, why you got to do that? And sometimes it's from our own, and then it's sometimes from those outside of us who are not like us um, physiologically or, 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 or culturally. So um, it's fine to say let's do all these things, 
my thing is this. I don't want to wait for the next person or organization to do it. The bottom line is that each person must put their hand into the muck and mire and get involved to whatever degree, um, to whatever uh, uh, capability they may have. So let's not leave that out. Everybody needs to participate. And, again, everybody must be held accountable. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and it goes back to what we've been saying all along is that it's a collective responsibility and a collective accountability because these, what we're talking about today are our children. And if we don't want our children to continually be behind the eight ball, we have to, as a group of people, figure out our own solutions and demand that certain things be done for our children. I, I agree we need to do that, and I, I think I think that there's something that I don't know if it's been mentioned or not, if I didn't hear it, but I think something that needs to be mentioned that that is not, I don't think, real clear. When you have students, and I'm not saying kids are kids, and and, and they're going to all do what kids do and pretty much learn whatever you ask them to do, but there's a, a very distinct difference between students in inner city that are not exposed, that do not have a support system, and students in the suburbs that do have a support system and are exposed to much more. I think everybody can agree with that. The problem that I see is the students, and I'm speaking black students, that are not exposed, do not have a support system, do not have a good teacher, do not have a good school board that's representing their district, those kids are in in a state of emergency because they are so far behind the other black students who do have exposure to that that it's not, it's sad. It's, 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 it's extremely sad. And so, yes, everybody needs to get involved somehow, some way, if it's only one child at a time. Uh, can I re- respond to that very quickly? Because I, I don't totally agree with that. Uh, maybe because I'm, I'm from the hood. I'm from the projects. And I'd be damned if somebody going to roll up in my neighborhood or in my house and tell me and my mama that I'm underprivileged and I can't do, and the kids in the suburb will whip my butt in the classroom. Oh, hell no. That's not going to happen. There are some kids that are in the city who are, you know, we think are disadvantaged and underprivileged, and they're ready to roll. They're ready to go. But we, we slowed them up intentionally by giving them a dumbed-down curriculum, a dumbed-down education. And I'm saying that it is not all about uh, helping uh, 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 kids uh, – exceed to grade level. Some of these kids ready to roll, they're ready to go to the stars. And we need to make sure that we have that option available. How do you do that then, is my I guess? How do you do that? Because the reason that the, I believe the curriculum was dumbed down, and I'm not saying I agree with that, right, that the right, curriculum right. being dumbed down, I, but the reason the curriculum was dumbed down is because when they tested those students in the project, I know there are smart students in the project, my family members are, are, are from the projects, and they are extremely smart, smarter than I am. But the reason the curriculum was dumbed down when they tested them, they didn't meet the standards. And so the standards had to be lowered in order for the federal government to keep sending those schools money. Because here's the deal. If you don't meet certain standards, you don't get certain money from the government. You can get the state money, but you don't get the federal money. So – how do you fix it? How, how, how do you fix it then with the kids that's ready to roll, as you say? Because the reason they dumbed it down is because when they tested them, they didn't meet it. They didn't meet. You do children no favors by taking federal monies, federal monies that are not in their best interest. You have to say to a child, listen, 
when I you are 12 years old, 30 years from now, I don't want to see you in jail. I don't want to see you unemployed, begging somebody for a job. I want to I see agree. you compete, competing on a global level with the best in the world. And this is how I'm going to have to get you here. Trust me. I'm going to be honest with you. Mama, I, I, I got his best interest in mind. I do you no favors, man, by uh, making a C, a A here, a C or D in the suburbs. That ain't, I, I, we can't do that. We have to make sure that our curriculum and our behavior is on par with our expectations for them. Plain and simple. And I know I'm kind of vague here because I think a lot of it is on a case by case basis, and we we got to take it as we as it goes. But my commitment to you is unwavering. I want to see you come, and I'm making no excuses for you, man. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. And I except I I, I think. If the kids, and I don't mean, I don't want to do no comparative stuff, but it, it, the fact of the matter, our kids got to compete. And if the kids in the suburbs are reading Shakespeare, and they're reading Jim, James Baldwin, and we're reading A Duck is a Duck, hey, man, I, I'm not going to keep you at that Duck is a Duck to get federal money. I can't do it. I can't do it. But I, I think you got to, I think 12 years old might be too late. I think you got to start when they're one and two years old. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah. That's where we have to start. And I'm just, and I'm thinking, if our churches could take those little one and two year olds and begin to teach them on the computer, they have some fun games on the computer where they can learn. That is the beginning. That's that's what I think. Yes, yes, I agree. There was a study done, uh, and I I can't remember who did the study, but there was a study done on black male third grade students. And it was found that if a black male third-grade student is not successfully reading on grade level, his chances of going to prison is 80%. So I would, I would definitely agree that you have to start way before 12 years old. Because That's the crib to crib 12 years old, it, it, it's, too, it's too late. It's too late at 12 years old to, to, to try and say, I want to get you to where you need to be. I'm not saying it can't happen. But you're talking about a huge hurdle that you're oh, trying. Oh no 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 no! That that was just that was just an example. That that wasn't. I wasn't. Okay. No no no. That's okay. just. An, yeah, you're right. You're okay. right. From the womb, you're absolutely right. I'm not. That's okay. just an example. Okay. Now okay. I've, I've heard a couple of things that were said um, earlier. First of all, the um, information about exposure, and I absolutely agree that exposure goes a long way. But the question becomes, who is supposed to be responsible for the exposure? You know, where, where mm-hmm. does the exposure come from? Who, who is supposed to expose you to these things that are going to help educate you? Because I agree, if you've never seen anything any differently, then the likelihood of you aspiring to any of those um, higher opportunities or better opportunities is probably going to be minimal. So you do have to have exposure, but who's responsible for that? And then the second thing that I want to jump on after someone answers the exposure question is standardized testing because that's a pet peeve of mine. But if anybody in the chat room, I'm sorry, anybody in the, um, on the line would like to talk about exposure and who's responsible for that, go ahead and get on that, and then we'll come back to the standardized testing. Yeah. Okay. Uh, <laughs> go ahead, Reverend. Yeah, yeah I, I'll chime in about, about exposure because I think exposure to some extent is relative. Uh, I mean, I grew up in a neighborhood where to the north of us was the Detroit Medical Center. 
K, and I walked through there to get to school every day. I saw doctors and their coats coming and going. I didn't know them. They didn't know me. Uh, uh, further down, uh, south of me was downtown Detroit. I saw people in their business suits, you know, going to work, doing what they had to do. I mean, I saw people doing things that were better than what I saw people in my neighborhood doing. And the fact of the matter is, it to me, those type of people would have been premature in my life at that time, at, at, you know, being a young person. Whereas uh, I had a friend who was uh, three, four year old, three or four years older than me, and he was, uh, uh, I thought, at that age for me, a much better mentor than, you know, than I, I could possibly have, have wanted. Because he told me, look here, when you go to high school, they're going to try to do this. When you go try for the basketball team, this is what's going to happen. When, when, you know, he, he, he was the one that was telling me, you know, preparing me for the next step, the next level. Now, when I went to college, you know, that's when you see other people, other students who, you know, where you expose yourself to other people, other mindsets, and you begin to say, hey, wait a minute, this kid next to me, he's no smarter than me, and he's talking about going to dental school. So what should I be doing? See, it's that type of thing. It, it, it all should, uh, what, what's the word I'm looking for? It all should come together at some point. But, but I, you know, exposure, I'd say, is relative. We could do it, man. We just got to keep focused. I think, I think I agree with that, and I think exposure is extremely important. Uh, I'll, just, I'll give one example. Uh, a friend of mine who's a teacher, his family members grew up in a very impoverished area where they never seen as simple as this is. They never seen a, a garage door go up electronically in a home. They lived in apartments. They never even seen that before. Only on TV. They invited him out to the house, and the little girl, his little cousin, I think she maybe was six or seven years old, said, "Oh, can you? T- what is that? Can you do that again?" And she watched it go up, and she asked, "How does that do that?" And he showed her how to chain moves, and it, it's just, I think in itself is the most basic form of exposure. Now she could actually relate to something that talks about the garage going up and the car coming out. Mm, mm, One other thing, very quickly. uh, When I went to college, uh, a friend of mine, you know, he took me to uh, the home of the dean of students. Uh, He was, you know, looking at homes, whatever. And and I asked him, I said, well, how much does this home cost? Now, I didn't know. I never lived in a, 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 a home. I lived, I'm from the projects. And he looked at me and said, he shook his head and said, don't ask that question. You know, that's, 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 like, that's none of my business how much the house costs. I'm not buying it. But the fact of the matter is that they're, you're right, there are growing pains that some other people may look at and say, hey, man, you don't know, you know, not to ask people to get into their personal affairs or, you know, don't ask silly questions about, you know, how much money they make or why their garage door goes up and down. But that's all a process of learning, man. You're going to make mistakes. Things like that's going to happen, and you just move on. Well, you know, I have another example for you. I happen to be in the medical field, and I went to a predominantly black um, school for their career day, and that particular day I wore my white. And the children, the only thing that they could relate to was they asked me, are you the new cafeteria lady? <laughs> that's right, that's right, that's right. Because <laughs> they had never been exposed to anybody wearing all white. You know, and I was like, oh, yeah. wow, how interesting is that? But, you know, it, it, um, what I wanted to get on before we leave, because we only have a few more minutes left in the show today, is the standardized testing, and perhaps we'll have a show just on that one day. But I, for one, 
just really do not believe that you can standardize an individual's education. And the example that I use all the time are uh, Hispanics because I know that they do a lot of, of building and things like that. And I think about the fact that if you put in front of them a, an equation that had something to do with a right angle or a 45-degree angle or anything like that, they probably would not have a clue what you were talking about. And if that was what was on the standardized test, it would probably fail. Yet every day when they build homes, they deal with those same types of information all the time. So I, I just don't know. I, I, I can't really get with the standardized testing because I think that people learn in all types of different ways. I think that people have different levels of propensity for certain subjects. Somebody may be better in English, so maybe they need to go write books, or somebody may be better in math, and maybe they need to build houses or whatever it is. But I think that trying to standardize an individual's education is a difficult task, and, and it's relative dependent on who the individual is that is writing the actual test. Because I'm sure if I wrote a standardized test and gave it to a lot of white people, they probably wouldn't have a clue about some of the things that I talked about on that test. So I, I think that it, when you get into standardized testing, that's a whole different area of discussion. Yeah, it is. I, it is. That that goes in a lot of different directions. Uh, but just to kind of kind of answer the question, or I guess adds a comment that is, you standardized testing has been been around for a long time. The reason that it is such a buzzword today is because the level of accountability that's attached to the standardized testing. Exactly. They were standardized testing 25, 30 years ago, but mm -hmm. they only used that information to build upon the student's education, and that was it. Now mm -hmm. they use it to remove superintendents, right. principals, teachers, so on and so forth. They tie mm -hmm. money to it. Your school gets this amount of money. Your school doesn't right. get this amount of money. You get right. a bonus. You don't get a bonus. I mean, so they when they tied those different things to standardized tests, that's when it became a problem. So what I'm trying to say in a nutshell, you can continue to standardize test students and use it as a tool to help them. Leave out the accountability where you tie in people's job performances, who gets right. what, who gets this, because then you're going to have people cheating. Now you're not cheating in the sense of what's A, B, and C, meaning you're going to cheat to, I'm not going to cover what's in black history. I'm going to cover what's on this test because black right. history is not on the test. Right. That's, right. What, that's the kind of cheating I'm talking about. You're cheating the kids out of the history. I'm not going to cover Cinco de Mayo. That's not on the test. I'm going to cover what's on the test. Mm -hmm. So that's, no, that's my it's, it's No experiential learning at all. You know, there. You know, back in the day, we would go to symphonies and ba uh, ballets and no time and for that. Museums. That's not on the test. Right? And you know what? We're that's not on the test. I'm not being facetious, but that's not on the test. Absolutely, that's for real. I agree with you. We'll have that show probably in a couple of weeks. But listen, we're running out of time, and I want to let you guys know next week our show will be entitled "Should Barack Obama Be the Savior for Black People?" I know I saw that on television yesterday, and I that just blew my mind. So if you guys want to join us next week, that is the topic, Should Barack Obama Be the Savior for Our Black People? I just want to thank everyone for joining us today on the show. It has truly, truly been amazing, and we look forward to um, hearing from you again on next week. And those in the chat room, thank you so much for being with us today. You've been listening to Worth More Than Rubies, and I'm your host, Cheryl Lacey Donovan on blogtalkradio.com. You can be anything that you want to be.
cause I really got a plan about what you're gonna do. Don't let nobody tell you this. It's your destiny. You don't see no window. People start tripping on the board. God's fish. You can be a politician even though they lie. Or you can push friends to something half-franchised. All I'm saying, baby, at least remember your first word. Cause if you say yourself sharp, believe me, the truth hurts. been listening to Worth More Than Rubies on blogtalkradio.com. Join us next week as we continue to discuss issues that help you to discover your true worth in God. Hurry into Old Navy tomorrow and Sunday to get jeans for the whole family on sale. Just $15 for adults, $12 for kids. Plus, starting tomorrow, redeem your super cash to save even more at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Super cash valid 6-3 to 6-11. Jeans valid 6-3 to 6-4. Select styles only. Hurry into Old Navy tomorrow and Sunday to get jeans for the whole family on sale. Just $15 for adults, $12 for kids. Plus, starting tomorrow, redeem your super cash to save even more at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Super cash valid 6-3 to 6-11. Jeans valid 6-3 to 6-4. Select styles only.